If you're involved in CPG, you know trade spend is one of the most costly items for any brand with a focus on retail. Nonetheless, most brands continue to use outdated manual tracking solutions for trade spend. The result? Scrambling to fight surprising deductions and lacking visibility on promotional ROI. Trust me, I've lived through this. Vividly is the top-rated trade promotion management software for CPG brands focused on efficient and scalable growth. Their software is a turnkey end-to-end -end solution that helps CPG brands of all sizes with trade promotion management, deduction management, and forecasting. Vividly even offers deduction management services with a track record of helping brands uncover hundreds of thousands of dollars in unplanned trade within the first two months. That's why Hopwater, Perfect Snacks, Lesser Evil, Vital Farms, and Liquid Death are all using Vividly today. So if you want to effectively manage that line in your P&L that often makes up 15 to 30% of gross sales, head to govividly.com, request a demo, and take control of your trade spend. Today on Subscribe Me to Wellness, we are joined by Jesse Merrill, co-founder of Good Culture. Good Culture's mission is to make real healing foods available to people without hurting the planet or our animals. Good Culture creates the most delicious cultured dairy products made only with the highest quality ingredients you can pronounce. Their cultured dairy products are full of clean protein, live and active cultures, and have none of the bad stuff like preservatives, added hormones, or gums. The company raised a $64 million Series C last year and is growing quickly. Hey listeners, Daniel here. Over the past few years, through my work with a handful of direct-to-consumer brands, I've gotten a front row seat for different retention strategies. Email and SMS campaigns, discount blasts, you name it. Very few brands are taking the time to set up effective loyalty referral and membership programs. That's why you should consider using Rebo. Rebo is my favorite retention platform for Shopify stores, powering over 7,000 stores, including Hexclad, Outer Isle, and Rareform. Rebo increases your brand's repeat purchase by 20% or more through loyalty, referral, and membership programs. I've spent time with Stuart, Rebo's CEO personally, and I can guarantee you using Revo will empower you to seamlessly set up effective loyalty and membership programs with minimal effort. If you're interested in giving Revo a try, sign up for a demo on Revo.io or email Stuart at Revo.io. That's S-T-U-A-R-T at Revo.io. I can guarantee you, you won't regret unlocking a new level of retention. Jesse, welcome to subscribing to Wellness. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Thanks for having me, Rachel. Pumped to be here. We are so pumped to have you. We are huge Good Culture fans. And uh, no, we'd love to kick it off and just hear a bit about your background, your story, and how you decided to start Good Culture. Sure. So I got my start in marketing. I was doing a lot of uh, experiential marketing, event-based marketing, and enjoyed that tremendously. I was hired to introduce new brands to new markets um, in an experiential way. And what I liked about it, um, I, I liked that you were able to create this really special, uh, unique, deep connection with the consumer um, as you thought through really creative ways of introducing you know, these folks to, to new products, new brands, et cetera. So I fell in love with that human element, with that connection. And for me, that was really, I think, the beginning of of thinking through what I wanted to do as a career. I was still quite young when I was when I was doing this, um, 
And, you know, I, I decided that I wanted to, to lean in a bit more, but I didn't know what that path looked like. And so I continue to take these, these jobs generally, if you know anything about, you know, kind of the event-based marketing space are usually contract positions, right? So you get a job to introduce a brand into a market. You do it for like three or four months, you live on the road, it wraps up, and then you're kind of like searching for a new, new gig. Um, and so I was doing that. And in between uh, two of, of the projects that I was working on, I met someone um, that had an opportunity uh, to connect me with the musician Moby. If you remember him, Moby from the 90s, techno rocker. He had started a tea company called Teeny or Tea New York. Um, it, it, he started it in out of a vegan cafe on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And it did quite well in his cafe and he wanted to scale it outside of the cafe. And so he decided to hire a team. Um, at the time that he contacted me, he had, I think, a, a president of the company, one finance person, one salesperson, and one ops person. And he needed someone to come in and lead the marketing charge. And he really wanted uh, someone that understood experiential marketing. Um, he wanted someone that could build that human connection. And so we met, we hit it off, he hired me. And for me, that was really a crash course in brand building, right? Because I, I didn't know a lot about building a brand outside of, you know, sampling to them at these various events that I described. So I was quickly introduced to the world of finance and I was introduced to the world of operations and sales and manufacturing supply chain. Um, so though I was hired to lead marketing, I was quickly wearing several hats, um, but it was an amazing foundation, right? I just, I was just thrown into it and I had to quickly learn. I had to learn how to be scrappy and gritty and entrepreneurial and learn how to do a lot with a little um, because we didn't have big budgets. Um, as I said, this was a very small company only in New York, and we were trying to you know, scale very thoughtfully um, in alternative retail. So that was the approach. Learned a lot. Um, after about a year of doing that, we had we had you know pretty pretty solid success from a growth rate standpoint. And we were starting to get the brand out there in, in a significant way up and down the streets in New York. And at that point in time, we started to think through expansion, uh, which required um, funding because at the time, Moby was funding the entire company um, out of his pocket. And, and he was also working on albums and doing other things. And he was you know, kind of faced with the decision of, do I continue to double down and invest more or do I raise outside capital or do I look for a buyer? And he ended up meeting a group out of Chicago that was really interested in buying the company. And he was knee deep in, in a new album. And he felt that it made sense to, to sell at that point in time. So I was only there for kind of a year and a half, roughly a year and a half before we decided to sell. Um, but again, great experience. Took it through to exit. Um, relatively small company, but a, a really amazing ride and journey, growth journey. Um, and so that happened. And I was then uh, introduced to someone at Honest Tea. So Honest Tea at the time was a very small company, only in the natural channel. They were sub 7 million revenue. And they called me because they liked what I was doing for Teeny. Because in New York City, at the time, Honest Tea was quite vulnerable. And we knew that. And we were taking advantage of that. And we were going into these up and down the street accounts and offering free fills. So we would go into a bodega and we would um, offer up a free case of teeny um, if they would give us honest tea shelf space. <laughs> and so we were doing it. You know, if you know anything about selling up and down the street in New York, it's guerrilla warfare. 
And, you know, so we went out there pretty aggressively to make that happen. And we created some real impact. And they gave me a call and they're like, look, we want you to do what you're doing for Teeny for, for Honest Tea. And I said, great. And I met with their team and I met with Seth Goldman, who's based out of Bethesda, Maryland. At the time I was living in New York City in a five floor walk up. I just had my my first child, my daughter, and and you know, living in a, a one room five floor walk up was not scalable or 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 enjoyable. And so um, this presented an, an opportunity to potentially um, you know take on a new a new role and move out to Bethesda and probably you know live in a larger space. And so met with Seth, and he just sold me on his dream, on the mission, on the brand, the products. Um, and I immediately fell in love, right? Because Seth Goldman, if you know anything about him, the real deal, the genuine article, you know, an authentically mission-led founder um, that never strays from values and, and really builds, um, you know, a business the right way. And so I was able to, to to learn a lot from him. So obviously I accepted the position. I joined as a uh, sales and marketing manager for the New York City market, did that for about a year. Grew, grew New York City by about 300%. I was then promoted to director of marketing um, and then ultimately became the VP of marketing and moved my family out to Bethesda and lived there and worked really closely with Seth and the team. Um, but that for me, you know, was was such a phenomenal experience. Like I said, working under Seth Goldman, being mentored by Seth, learning how to build a brand responsibly, learning how to build a brand with a values first uh, approach was just, um, you know, it was it was a rewarding um, and it really kind of changed the way I thought about business and the way I thought about showing up not only as a marketer at the time, but as, as a human. And so it became the catalyst for me wanting to ultimately create my own my own brand. Um, we, as I said, when I joined Honest Tea, there were sub eight, seven million in revenue, roughly. Um, we grew the brand to uh, 80, 80 million in less than five years. And then we sold the company to Coca-Cola in 2011. So really learned, you know, what it took to scale a brand um, from the ground up through to exit um, into, you know, into the, the, the Coca-Cola system, which was a phenomenal experience. So that happened, um, went through the transition and I was then uh, approached by a gentleman named Anders Eisner who happens to be the son of Michael Eisner, who's the ex-CEO at Disney. And Anders was running a, a beverage company called Activate Drinks. He was going after vitamin water that had recently sold to Coca-Cola for like $4.2 billion, uh, you know, an, an amazingly impressive exit. Um, and he had a disruptive technology where he actually stored vitamins separately uh, in a twist cap. So you would twist the cap, the vitamins would be released into the bottle and you would have a fresh dose of vitamins. And he had all this research that showed that if vitamins sit in water for a period of time, um, they lose their potency. There's really no efficacy. Um, and so that was that was the, the proposition. Um, he had just raised money from Tata Group. He was surrounded by great people, including his father, Michael Eisner, who was the chairman of the board. Um, and so I decided to take that, that role. So I left Bethesda, moved to Irvine, California, in Orange County, where I am today. And, uh, and, and, you know, and just leaned in, I, I attacked the opportunity, built a really great relationship with Anders. We scaled the company over about three and a half years and then sold that company to a group in, uh, in Canada. Um, so that brings us to 2014, roughly. Um, I'm now looking at my next opportunity and Anders and I start talking about wanting to do something else, uh, together. 
And he approaches me and asks me, you know, if there are specific ideas that I have, um, or if there's things that I, you know, that I'm, that I'm, you know, currently passionate about and cottage cheese was one, um, that was on the radar. I was looking at several different opportunity areas, by the way, but cottage cheese really seemed to pop for me because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a marketer as I, as I explained. And when you see a space as ripe for innovation, as sleepy, as stagnant, as what cottage cheese was when I was looking at the space in 2014, it just, you know, it just gets you really excited. It just gets you really jazzed, right? You just want to sink your teeth into that and think through how to bring relevance back, you know, to a category that was actually bigger than yogurt in 1975. Um, and then just completely fell off due to a lack of innovation. And so I got, I was really intrigued, right? I was like, what, like what happened to cottage cheese? Why did it fall off? And I started to pay attention to um, the products that were on shelf and most products on shelf were loaded with additives, with thickeners, emulsifiers, chemical preservatives, gums, et cetera. Um, so that wasn't cool. That's not something that I would eat. Um, and the taste pro profile wasn't great. Uh, most of the cottage cheese brands on shelf were kind of soupy and slimy and chunky. And it, it just wasn't a great taste experience. Um, and then, you know, in terms of the way that the brands were, were, were marketed, they, they just felt old, right? They felt tired. It felt like, you know, nothing had changed since 1975. Um, and so I saw a big opportunity to try to bring relevance back to this category. And then I also paid attention to the nutritional benefits. And if you, you know, look at that cottage cheese, there's more protein and less sugar in a cup of cottage cheese than a Greek yogurt. But people, you know, weren't talking about that. They weren't really aware of that. So I really looked at it as this overlooked superfood that was also cultured that had gut health properties. Um, you know, so it, it, it just checked so many boxes in terms of what today's consumer was looking for, but it just wasn't being presented in the right way. Right. So that, the, so the thesis was, how do you take this overlooked superfood and repackage it, reimagine it and, and, and reintroduce it to the world in a way that's going to not only resonate with current users, but also resonate with folks that aren't shopping the category today, like young Gen X, like millennials, um, and now Gen Z. And so that, you know, so the thesis was, how do you make cottage cheese sexy to younger consumer segments, to new uh, consumer segments? And, and we went all in, um, you know, Anders loved the idea. We rallied, we found a co-packer in Wisconsin that was able to work with us. They didn't have big uh, volume requirements, which was phenomenal for us because I, I think I received probably four or five no's before finding this co-packer because the first question is how much volume are you doing? And it was like, well, yeah, well none. <laughs> it's, it's an idea, um, but I think it's going to be a really good idea. Um, and most folks are like, all right, cool. Call us when you have volume. Um, and so we found someone that really believed in the vision and they were willing to work with us. And we built, um, we, we, we created samples. Um, we, you know, we worked on the packaging, the branding. We, we you know, built out the, the good culture brand, um, the, the, the ethos, the look and feel, et cetera. Um, and then found this co-packer that could help us make our products. And a lot of work went into, into this because we had to create a proprietary recipe um, that wouldn't be as polarizing as what we were hearing, uh, you know, from other folks about the category. Like I said, most folks that don't like cottage cheese, they don't like it because of some kind of sensory issue, right? It's, oh, I don't know. It's just too slimy. Eh, it's like too chunky. Oh, I don't like the curd. Like there's always a sensory barrier for folks that don't like it. Or there's folks that absolutely, you know, they go all in and they love it. So it, it, is, it is a bit of a polarizing category. So we wanted to solve for that. 
and we created a texture that was much thicker, much creamier, ate more like a yogurt. Um, and you know, it was something that, you know, we felt would be more accessible, even to folks that didn't think they like cottage cheese. And that has certainly proven out. You hear that today from consumers who eat our product, experience our product. They'll tell us they heard about it or they saw it on TikTok or whatever. And they will come back to us and say, look, we, I, I thought I hated cottage cheese. I ate good culture and now I eat it every day. And I actually um, still hate cottage cheese, but I eat cottage cheese. I'm sorry, but I eat good culture every <laughs> single day. So they're elevating the brand uh, above the category, which is, which is phenomenal. And just, you know, obviously validates that the proprietary formulation that we created was something that really um, hit in a big way. So we, we developed this, this unique uh, proprietary formulation. Um, we made sure that it was clean label. Um, we made sure that we were sourcing it responsibly. We launched as an organic only company. Um, we ensured that we had recyclable packaging. And so we had, you know, we had a, a really good mission, mission driven story um, in addition to a really amazing uh, product. And so we decided to introduce the company um, at Expo West in March of 2015 to get a sense of how the world would respond to it. And the thinking was, if we went into that show and buyers, category managers were excited, then obviously we'd, we'd, we'd keep going. If everyone kind of laughed us out of the show and said, we really don't care about cottages, then maybe we'd pivot and, and do something else. So that was our, our real coming out party and introduced the brand and there were several folks that came to the booth with a lot of excitement. We heard from several, um, you know, key conventional retailers. We heard from several, you know, key retailers in, in the natural channel. Uh, we heard from key club club customers, et cetera. So it was just a, you know, phenomenal um, showing and gave us the confidence to keep going. And so we left that show with distribution in one region of Whole Foods, 55 stores wow. um, and, and Sprouts, uh, wow. which was, which was amazing. Yeah. So it was a huge high five moment and we were nominated for a next award. Um, so it was this great show for us. And we then proceeded to move forward with, um, with whole foods and sprouts leaned in proved out, um, traction. We hit, you know, we hit or exceeded velocity thresholds and then ended up going national, uh, with whole foods, um, after just three months of, of being in, in one region. So that was, you know, amazing for us really put us on the map, um, we then, you know, attracted, um, you know, funding from some really great uh, VC groups and continued to, you know, to lean in and, and scale. So that's, you know, and then, you know, and obviously from there, we've just, we've grown, you know, quite a bit, you know, year over year growth since the star has been phenomenal. Um, we're currently in a position where we can't, you know, keep up with demand. We're trying to build more and more manufacturing to support current growth. Um, so it's been a really good ride. Yeah, no, that your story is just amazing. And I think it's, I think a lot of people today probably have just gotten to know good culture and it's just come into their repertoire because of social media and all the crazes that we've seen. Um, but if we take, if we go back to kind of, you know, post expo when you announced the brand, I'm curious how you were driving velocities and how you knew, like how you were kind of like transforming the consumer's um, original thoughts on the category of cottage cheese, because the brand really popped more recently, like from at least my understanding, you know, like good culture now, it's like literally everywhere. But 2015 was 10, like eight years ago. So like ha what happened between now and then, or then and now? 
Yeah. I mean, when we first launched, we were 100% focused on in-store marketing. Like we knew that we needed folks to taste the product. It was, it was really that simple, right? Um, we, we needed, and, and we had a limited footprint, so we could support um, our brand through, through demos. That was, that was the one lever that we were really pulling um, in addition to trade. And so um, we were living in Whole Foods stores. We were living in Sprout stores. We were introducing folks to the product. We were talking to them about why it's a superfood. We were talking to them about um, live and active cultures. We were talking to them about our our texture and why we're different and why it's better. Um, and you know, and we talked about our sourcing story, right? We only we were only sourcing um, from organic cows that were you know that were you know living on small family farms, etc. And that story really resonated in, in a big way. And we were able to move the needle through heavy demo support um, across both Whole Foods and, and Sprouts. So, so that's kind of how it started. Um, and we continue to rely on, on demo support and shopper initiatives, like, you know, in-store shopper marketing support um, for a long time, up until recently, where we started to pivot more towards brands. So we still have um, shopper support. That's still a major part of our marketing mix. Um, but we also want to ensure that people really, you know, know, understand our story, um, understand the brand, understand what we're doing. Um, it has to go beyond product marketing. And so I think while product marketing or, or, or performance-based marketing was powerful in early years and really helped us to, you know, hold shelf space and, and improve our growth to become, you know, a truly enduring iconic brand over time, that that you have to shift to brand, right? You have to tell that story in a in a really uh, impactful, powerful way that's going to build that emotional connection. Yeah. What? Sorry, go ahead, Rachel. Um, I'm curious, like how you guys so the so the uptick in cottage cheese obviously didn't come necessarily directly from you as a brand. Like it's not as if you went viral on TikTok because you, the brand, were like, we're going to make cottage cheese ice cream. We're going to make girl dinners. We're going to do these things and then like show people in a different way. So I'm curious, like how you guys have reacted as a brand to the virality and what you've done to like support the other virality marketing nature that's kind of happened by chance. Yeah. I mean, look, we're, we're partnered with several influencers that are building those recipes. Um, we are creating our own internal recipes. We have a heavy uh, digital component uh, to our marketing now. That's a that's a, a that's, a, that's a, a significant lever that we're pulling. Um, so we're ensuring that we're elevating our presence um, as much as we can across all social platforms and really tapping into influencers uh, to ensure that we're capturing those tailwinds and being um, center to the story. I mean, and if you look, if you pay attention to you know the videos on TikTok, I would say roughly you know ninety percent of those videos feature good culture. So we are we are the brand um, that is at the center of that movement. So like you know I've I've been asked this question before in terms of like, you know, what was your involvement in, in building the trend or creating the trend? And really my, my answer to that is like, we, we, like our mission going in was to, you know, reinvent or reimagine the category. So we've been bringing disruption to cottage cheese since day one. And so I think, you know, it's been a, a slow build to this moment, but we've been chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, showing people, helping people understand, you know, why cottage cheese is better, why it's delicious, why you know how versatile it is? I mean, we've been showcasing really creative recipes with cottage cheese since 2015 um, in social channels and on our website. And so I think it's kind of it's it's kind of caught up and obviously became wildly accelerated as Gen Z on TikTok started to you know kind of pick it up 
And that ice cream recipe obviously went viral and that really helped to build a lot of tailwinds. Um, but we have really been um, at the center of that disruption story um, really, really since the start. And now we're just continuing to think through, you know, creative ways of ensuring that we're, we're a part of that conversation um, in terms of, um, you know, the, our, our innovation strategy and in terms of, you know, how we're, we're partnering with, with, you know, relevant influencers, um, et cetera. So I think, you know, for us, we'll just, we'll just continue to, to, uh, to be a, a central part of the story in a thoughtful way. Yeah. It's so nice when there's like an unexpected growth lever that actually catalyzes the business. Cause you, yeah. you have all these growth levers on paper and usually a few of them end up not happening, but then all of a sudden you have this younger consumer who didn't expect to jump on like a cottage cheese trend jumping in. So that's gotta be amazing. Yeah. Um, one question I had for you is just about the whole story around regenerative, how you guys went about qualifying suppliers who are regenerative, how you thought about scaling your supply chain bringing on new commands but still sourcing from regenerative farms when you brought on these new commands and kind of the complexity associated with that process could you just talk a little bit about regenerative and it's kind of part of the story and how you've gone about being a kind of advocate for for that you know practice within the farming industry yeah 100 so as so as mentioned i when we launched we were organic only um, and you know, when, when, when you source organic, there is a certain require pasture requirement that all cows have to adhere to that farms have to adhere to, right. You have to be in a pasture for usually about 120 days out of the year minimum. Um, so you have standards in place, which is, which is great. Um, as we scaled, we rolled out a, um, a, a what we call our simply line, which is not organic. Um, but we made it a focus to ensure that we were sourcing, that we continue to source from small family farms, family farms um, that were primarily um, pasture. And so that was the North Star. The reality is, and this was like a big learning for me coming into the dairy space, because I, as, as you know, I came from the tea space and I, I didn't know a lot about the dairy space. I learned that 90% of US dairy cows were confined. Um, as I was building um, build, building our, our, you know, our, our manufacturing um, our supply chain, et cetera. And that was just like a punch in the gut and totally broke my heart and realized that there was a major issue um, in the food system. And so that became a major mission for our company was to think through how do you build a milk supply that doesn't actually exist today? Um, because it doesn't. Like if I want to, I, I can't just, you know, go out today and, and find a conventional pasture-raised milk supply. Um, and if I And if I could, it would be very small and probably wouldn't be scalable. So we have to actually now create our own um, pasture access, pasture-based um, conventional milk supply. And the way we're doing that is we're partnering with with large co-ops. Like we're, we're now partnered with the low, largest co-op in the country. Um, we've put together a program called Path to Pasture, um, where we are focused on working with existing pasture-based farms and making them better, and also working to convert um, confined farms to uh, to pasture farms with a focus on planned grazing and regenerative ag is, is a part of this, right? Because you can't, you, you can't, you can't focus on healthy soil without having, um, the animal in the ecosystem, right? They are a major part of creating healthy soil. Rotational grazing is an, is a major part of creating healthy soil that sequesters, you know, more carbon. And so soil health and, and pasture go hand in hand. And so we are working with our with our partners to ensure that they are 
adopting practices that that put them on the right path towards getting there. And the good news is most of our partners are quite receptive, right? They see that that is the future. That is what the consumer is looking for. Um, and so they're working with us to to create change. But it's not something that happens overnight, right? Like this is something that will take years to build. And we're, you know, kind of working on it, you know, one farm at a time. Um, but it is it's an ongoing mission and it's central to kind of who we are and how, and how we show up. I love it. Um, I think it's, and it's just interesting. Like when you think about the standards for regenerative farming, is it, I mean, how, how do you kind of see it evolving in the future? Is it just about having, is it, you must have rotational, you have organic practices, you have pasture raised. Do you kind of envision a definition kind of being, um, you know, like defined by States as kind of this, this general like focus evolves or, how do you guys kind of think about the future of regenerative and kind of bringing, I guess, standardization or do we not even need that? Yeah. I mean, look, it's being worked on. Um, there's folks that are trying to standardize. And I think that's a, a big part of um, what the dairy industry needs to come together and do. And we want to certainly be a part of that is to create a, a true regenerative seal um, that you can really stand behind. Um, that that means something to the consumer that they, that they trust. Um, right now, I think it's, it's a little, it's a little gray. So it still needs to be heavily defined. There needs there needs to be more more funding around it, uh, more government subsidization uh, to help with with conversion um, because that that's a major challenge for farmers, right? Farmers that are, you know, conventional with confined um, animals, it's hard for them to just shift to a regenerative model to a pasture model, right? They're running a business. They need to they need to feed their families and you know keep food on the table, um, and if they're going to be losing a lot of money in that transition, then that doesn't create a sustainable, scalable solution. And so we're working with groups to help educate farmers to show case studies that prove out that when you make this transition um, from, you know, confinement to, you know, pasture with a focus on rotational grazing and regenerative ag, that you can actually increase your yields and build a more profitable model, right? Less, less, less inputs, more output. Um, but it does take time. And so I think they're, there, there's work that needs to be done to ensure that there is subsidization to help farmers get through that process. And it's similar to what you saw happen with organic, right? I mean, you had the same challenge where conventional to organic was a three-year process and they were losing money uh, during that transition. And so it just, it wasn't scalable or sustainable. And so, um, you know, subsidization has, has played a key role in that. And several farmers have obviously moved moved to organic as a result. So I think that's kind of the next the next wave you need, we need to do something similar to get folks to um, a regenerative ag uh, model. Yeah. It's so interesting. I do want to talk about that good culture, like the product lineup that you, you do offer. And I know good culture started obviously just as cottage cheese, but today, you know, it's beyond cottage cheese with sour cream, milk, et cetera. What made you realize that it was time to expand the product portfolio and like what made you choose to go into the categories that you went into? Yeah, I, I think the vision from day one was to build a cultured foods platform company, right? When we first launched, we didn't say we want to be a cottage cheese company. Um, obviously, cottage cheese was a disruption opportunity that we liked and we and we, and we moved forward there. Um, but we think there's um, broader applications for the brand. We think good culture can live across other culture dairy spaces or culture food spaces. Um, and so, you know, sour cream is something that made a lot of sense for us. We felt that that space was also a bit stagnant um, and was right for, for disruption. 
and we had co-packers that could could make it right so it was practical and functional as well and so we we rolled into sour cream but in a in a focused way um and then cream cheese also you know, that's a category that you know it's kind of dominated by one brand and we feel there's an opportunity to bring more disruption um and better better for you products to that space and so that's why we felt cream cheese was also a good opportunity um like how do you how do you kind of uphold the ideals of of you know what we did with cottage cheese and bring those through into sour cream and cream cheese and other adjacent culture dairy spaces um in a way that's going to really elevate those categories um but we're being really methodical about it right like our 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 mantra is deep versus wide right we don't we're not like launching new products everywhere we're thinking through okay does cream cheese make sense does it not make sense if it does make sense let's put it into a few doors in the right accounts where we know our shopper you know spends time and and let's make it work there and if we can prove out traction and 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 prove out that this this thing really has legs then let's you know methodically go into the next account that makes sense and over time scale um and so most of our focus today continues to be on cottage um, but we are also, um, testing, uh, I would, I would call it, a, you know, a test and learn with cream cheese and then sour cream is a bit more mature, but still we're doing it in a, in a focused way. Yeah. I'm curious. You guys also have a lactose free line of cottage cheese. And I'm wondering how you think about like the non-dairy space as it relates to a cultured brand. And if you'd ever foray into, you know, a non-dairy cottage cheese or something in that nature. Yeah. I mean, look, anything's possible. Um, like I said, I, when I first defined, um, the platform, I called, I defined it as cultured foods. Um, I didn't say culture dairy. And so that could lend itself to several things, right. That could, that could play in plant-based that could be sauerkraut. That could be kimchi. Like, I'm not saying those are the things I want to do, but it, but it could, it could, it could go into several places like that. Um, so maybe one day, but today hyper-focused on the power of culture dairy, yeah. um, we're, big believer in, in real food. I think you're seeing a lot of folks pivot away from processed foods that have, have a health halo, but they're still ultra processed For and you're sure. seeing people, you know, they're pivoting away from that and moving towards real foods. You're seeing a surge in, in dairy, you're seeing a surge in real meat, you know, but, but it has to be quality, right? Ha- like if you're going to eat meat, make sure it's grass fed. If you're going to eat dairy, make sure it's, you know, it's pasture, it's organic, um, it's clean label, et cetera. So there's, there's a way um, to really drive, um, you know, wellness, um, through the through, yeah. through resources, the real, yeah. it's, it's what we saw with like Hugh kitchen coming out with a, uh, a milk chocolate bar and yes. same thing with cosmic bliss coming out with when they rebranded coming out with like a full dairy line. Like we've talked exactly. to Jason Harp about this. Um, and his thoughts are very similar to yours in this regard. Um, so I, I appreciate, and, and I think Daniel, and I, I can speak for both of us. Like we definitely do believe in that real food, real, like I'm not going to eat a plant-based thing. That's just like loaded with preservatives or other. Right. Oh yeah. Right. I'd rather eat clean dairy all day long over something highly mm-hmm. with additives. Um, and, and I don't know. So I have a, a personal healing story too, that kind of ties to this, um, which happened, you know, right when we launched good culture, I was like, less than a year in. And I was, um, I started experiencing weight loss and cramping, um, bloating. It was like hard to kind of focus, you know, mental clarity diminished. 
and didn't know what was going on. I thought I, was, I had food poisoning at first and I kind of try, I tried to ride it out for like a month or so. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And like every time I would eat food, it literally felt like I was eating shards of glass. Like it got that bad. And so went to a GI um, and they told me that I needed an immediate colonoscopy, which was always fun. And I found out that, <laughs> that, um, that I had ulcerative colitis which is an autoimmune condition where your body attacks your immune system unnecessarily attacks itself, creating unnecessary inflammation. Um, and so I was told that I would need to live on drugs, steroids to keep your inflammation levels at bay um, and push back on that. I, I, I'm not someone that believes in living on medication. I'm someone that believes in food as medicine that you can truly heal, heal yourself through, through lifestyle and, 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 and food choices. And so I found a functional doctor, integrative doctor that fully believed in that, um, that has had good success with other patients with ulcerative colitis. And they put me on a highly restrictive diet, which consisted of real culture, dairy, real grass fed meats, um, no nuts, no seeds, no grain, no caffeine, no alcohol, uh, vegetables, but only cooked vegetables and fruit. And so that was it. That was all I could live on. And I had to live on it for three years. Um, they, you know, they were like, look, if you do this for two months, even if you feel better, but you go back to eating the way you used to eat, you're, you're going to relapse. So you got to really commit. If you truly want to heal your gut, you have to commit. And so I went all in and I ate that way for three years straight after six to eight weeks of living on that restrictive diet. Uh, my symptoms went away. And like I said, I was living with, with horrific symptoms for, you know, one to two months probably before this happened. So they went away pretty quickly. Um, after year one, um, I had another colonoscopy and it showed that my inflammation levels had returned uh, or haven't returned to a, a healthy level, but they were, they were moving in the right direction. Year two, they had returned to a healthy level. And then year three, um, I had no signs of UC at all. And they did a biopsy and the pathology came back showing that I was completely free of the disease. And wow. so this was, you know, this was considered a chronic condition, um, that you would need to live on drugs, you know, for, for the rest of your life. And, um, you know, I proved out through that process that you really can heal your, yourself through food. And so that really informed how we think about ingredient selection for, for good culture, right? Like, you know, like, we were a clean label going in even before that happened. Um, but that really, you know, kind of, um, you know, underscored my, my belief in, in only using uh, clean label ingredients, never using anything processed, um, certainly not using things like gums, like gums are highly inflammatory. So like never use a gum, don't use emulsifiers, don't use preservatives, et cetera. Um, and so that was a, you know, a story that I think really obviously resonated with me and, and how I wanted to build good culture. So I'd say the combination of learning what I learned about, uh, confinement, animal, animal confinement, am I, and, and validating, uh, food as medicine, um, really helped to, to inform good culture's mission. As I realize summer is officially over, I'm trying to create daily habits that allow me to feel my best. I've been enjoying wild way granola as part of my routine. It's made of 100% real ingredients with no added sugars, preservatives, seed oils, or flavorings. It's just a wholesome blend of nuts, seeds, dried fruit, and spices. It's the perfect mix of chewy and crunchy and the best addition to my morning yogurt. Head to Wild Way of Life to grab your bag. Our next partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutritional supplement that supports whole body health. 
I drink AG1 first thing in the morning. It's the very first thing I put in my body before anything else. I personally love drinking it with fresh squeezed lemon juice. It makes me feel ready to take on my day. It's my personal start button and my body craves it daily. It has become an absolute staple in my routine. I originally gave AG1 a try because I was so tired of taking all these different supplements and I needed something simple that I could stick to. It's a routine that stays with me no matter where I go. The travel packs make it so easy and allow me to feel grounded no matter where I am. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash STW. That's drinkag1.com slash STW. Check it out. That's an incredible story. Um, I mean, and I, I personally, I strive to eat mostly plants and animals in, in their most natural form every day. And it's funny because Rachel and I, and I'm sure you as well, I mean, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about CPG products. And when you package a product, like usually it is processed. Um, so it's amazing to see a product that is just as close as possible to being unprocessed in the CPG space, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, on a totally different note, kind of changing subjects, you guys went out and raised about $60 million in, in 2022 to support um, your expansion and your growth. I'd be curious, one, just to hear about that process, like what it was like going to raise a true, you know, big growth round, finding the right partner. Obviously, Monetary is amazing. And, and Steve and Ross have built something great over there. And then on top of that, just because we do have some entrepreneurs who are kind of in that phase of building from from 10 to 100 who really listen to this podcast, could you talk a bit about kind of the key parts of the business that become really, really important to focus on when you're in that kind of 10 to 100 phase that may be very different from kind of the zero to one, one to 10 days? Yeah, I mean, look, fundraising is never, never easy. It's always going to be a marathon. Um, you got to, you know, first and foremost, you got to find the right partners that um, align with your values, right? So that that is critical. Um, you don't want to partner with someone that, you know, isn't isn't aligned with you, because that's going to create a, a really tough working environment on, you know, in the long term. Um, so for me personally, I, I seek out the right partners first. Now, who are the folks that are truly going to live my values in an authentic way? Um, who are the folks that I want to work with on a day-to-day -day basis um, on a human level? Um, as you mentioned, Manatree is phenomenal. So they checked all those boxes. Um, and then I also work with Seminole Capital, uh, led by by John Haugen, who used to be with 301 Inc. at General Mills. He's a phenomenal guy. He was on my board, actually, um, when when uh, when 301 Inc. was an investor and then moved on, moved on to SEMCAP and is now also a board member. So that was a great, um, you know, great, great continuity with John. Um, so, you know, for me, I found found the right people. Um, but in terms of, you know, the, the nuances between raising, you know, zero to 10 versus 10 to hundred, it is quite different, right? Cause zero to 10, you're selling folks on a dream, right? You're selling them on a, on a, on a vision that, you know, you might have some revenue, um, you might have some, you know, velocity data to prove out traction, but at the end of the day, um, there's still a lot of risk, right? There's still a lot of guessing that goes into it. And so you have to really believe in the founders, in the executive team, you have to believe in the products. You have to believe in the power of the brand. Um, but but it's but it but it's higher risk at the end of the day, right? For investors, um, when you're a bit more proven out, 
and you have wide distribution. Like today we're in, you know, over 15,000 doors. Um, you know, we've proven out traction uh, pretty dramatically in most accounts. We're like number one fastest growing brand in Whole Foods and Sprouts, Kroger, Target, et cetera. Right. So when you start to have that, uh, that reel, if you will, to showcase to investors, it's a lot easier for them to kind of see the path forward. Um, the, the other big changes that have, you know, kind of materialized over the years when I, when I used to raise uh, in earlier rounds, it was much more about consumer acceptance and top line revenue. Um, and that has shifted. Obviously the, the acceptance still needs to be there and your revenue growth still needs to be strong, uh, but there's a much bigger focus on EBITDA, right? On, on profitability. Uh, you have to make sure that you're building something um, that has that that is already profitable or has a clear path to profitability so that you can create a sustainable company. Um, and that is so much more critical now uh, for investors, um, you know, pri- for private equity, for venture capital, for strategics. Um, that is that's that's core uh, to to what they're looking for in in a exciting, you know, healthy investment opportunity. And so we're doing you know everything that we can do on our end to ensure that not only are we driving, really exciting growth, but we're doing it profitably. So driving profitable growth is, is the strategic pillar for us for, for, you know, this year and beyond. Yeah. I, um, I'm curious, like, what are you most excited about? You, you know, you are building such a brand that has so much in it and is so topical right now. Like, what are you most excited about for good culture moving forward? I think our ability to, you know, to, build a brand that has um access to the masses <laughs> because i think we, we we started um you know in a very focused manner and it was probably probably a bit more niche and we were probably only resonating with uh, more narrow um, segments and now you're seeing that really open up and we're starting to create real impact with large groups of people um you know spanning several different um consumer segments right like we're doing well with boomers, we're doing well with Gen X, we're doing well with millennials, we're doing really well with Gen Z now. And so to, to have the opportunity to, to, to create a household name, um, you know, in a, in a really wide way and have the ability to create true impact um, is so exciting and so meaningful and so rewarding, especially with the work that we talked about with regenerative ag and the ability to change the food system, right? Like if you can create real scale um, behind a brand that's creating real change, then, you know, for me, that that's, that's, that's our North star, right? That's what, that's why I get up in the morning. That's what gets me excited. And so it's no longer, you know, just a, a model for change. It becomes a vehicle for change. Love it. It'll be great to, yeah, to see you guys expand, I'm guessing into to more club and more mass and, and just cover more ge- geographies. Very exciting. Yeah. Um, one question we asked all our guests is how they subscribe to wellness. So what are a few habits that you're focused on a weekly basis to ensure that you continue to live a healthy life. Yeah. Um, so I do several things. I mean, you know, wellness is, is obviously always about uh, both physical and mental. And so you need to do both. So I, I'm, I'm very, um, you know, prescriptive in terms of the foods that I eat. Um, I, you know, obviously I, I, I'm now beyond my ulcerative colitis, so I'm not quite as restrictive as I went as I was back then. But I'm still only eating clean foods, only eating foods that make me feel good. I stay away completely from processed foods, um, and so the way I eat makes me feel great, gives me high energy levels, gives me mental clarity. So that is something that I will never stray from. Like people look at it like, well, when do you cheat? When do you eat? 
junk food. Like you have to, you have to take a break. And for me, that's like, that doesn't bring happiness into my life that I, I actually feel like I feel worse when I do it. And so I take a lot of um, pride and there's a lot of satisfaction in eating. I, I can still eat something sweet, but I'm not going to eat something that's loaded with, you know, re- refined sugars. I'm going to eat something that's, that's, that's sweetened with honey or dates. And that's still going to satisfy my sweet tooth, but I'm going to feel really good when I eat it still going to taste delicious and I'm going to feel better afterwards. So that is a major part of just feeling good um, overall from a physical standpoint. And then from a mental health standpoint, my God, like I have to work out every single day. Like I can't start my day unless I have some serious cardio going on. <laughs> and right now I'm a, uh, I'm, I'm big on swimming. I, I, I've used to be a big runner and then I started injuring myself all the time. So I moved over to swimming, which is you know, a lot more gentle. And so, and so I'm swimming every day, but I feel so like, it's the best feeling ever, like getting up in the morning, having, you know, I have like a, you know, a green drink, I have my supplements and then I jump into the pool and I do my laps and I, you know, I get out and I just feel so refreshed and ready to go for the day. And then I continue to eat, you know, real whole foods for the majority of the day. Um, end of the day, you know, sleep and meditation is a, is, is a, a key component as well. Um, and so before trying to go to sleep, I will always uh, meditate usually up to 30 minutes. Um, and that, yeah. And that really, um, it clears my mind. It gives me perspective, gives me balance. Um, and it puts me into um, a mindset where I feel like I can, you know, kind of take on, take on the day, push away any anxieties, focus on what really matters. Um, you know, not, not get caught up in, in, um, I, I would say overblown, fear because most fear um is overblown most fear is not rational it's almost always irrational and and meditation helps me you know kind of think through that <laughs> and 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 realize you know what like that i know like that drove anxiety today it really shouldn't have and here's why and i and i'm able to like kind of rebalance and reset and go into the next day and in, in you know in a really good place and be a lot more productive um the other thing i will say is you know a lot of folks talk about work-life balance, like always needing to find work-life balance. I think the goal is to ensure that your work, you know, is kind of almost merged with your life. Like I almost feel like it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be a binary decision. Like, all right, I'm either working or I'm playing, I'm working or I'm playing. Like if you can get your work to feel like play, then my gosh, then, I mean, that now you've just found such a great (laughs) way to live your life, right? Because you're not, hating everything as you're working, looking for that relief, looking for that respite when you can like get out of your office and go do something. So I love being being with my kids. I love doing fun things, but I also love the journey of building a brand. So like, if you truly love it, if you can get yourself to truly, truly love it, um, then work-life balance is just kind of, you know, inherent in everything you do. Yeah, it's so true. And I think we all strive for that so much. I have to ask you, because I'm sure so many listeners are wondering, what is your favorite way to eat cottage cheese? Um, so. Or favorite flavor or like, yeah. product, like any, any of it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a hard conversation or question because I do it in so many different ways and I like so many different ways, but like, I will say my go-to is probably either the 4% organic or the 6%. Um, I like high fat. I love that buttery mouthfeel. It's, it's, it's just craveable. It's so good. And we have like a soft curd melting your mouth cottage cheese. Um, and, and when you add that extra milk fat, it's just, it's just 
decadent. It's just so good. So I will eat that straight out. I'll, I'll eat like a full 16 ounce tub in one sitting. Um, I also like mixing it with nut butters. Like if you, if you take a tub of 4%, 6% and you mix it with almond butter or peanut butter and you put honey in there, you know, berries, whatever, like granola. Um, I love, I love purely Elizabeth granola. I, I, I use that quite a bit. Um, it, it just tastes so good. It's just such an amazing experience. So that's one, that's, that's probably my go-to. That's what I do most regularly, but I also like to spread it because our, our cottage cheese is a lot thicker and creamier. You can spread it spreadable. So I will spread it on like sourdough, um, you know, toast sourdough and put that on there maybe put some savory ingredients on top. Um, and that is also, you know, unbelievably good. So that, there, that's there any way you, you're any way you can get your hands on it. Some people yes. are like, some people are like, savory or sweet savory or sweet it's like one or the other oh, i do both yeah i like both love fruit, it love it fruit and honey is great yeah um we usually ask our guests where like you can find good culture or but uh i don't even know if i need to ask you that because it's just wherever you go to your supermarket go get it, yeah, <laughs> go get your hands on it as quick as possible but share your social handles so that uh people can find you online Yes. Um, so you can find us on Instagram. You know, I'm actually going to pull it up so I read it correctly. But obviously we're on, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we're on TikTok, we're on Pinterest. Wherever you can find your cottage cheese recipes, go find some good culture ones. Um, amazing. Jesse, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. So, yeah, so by the way, and feel, by the way, feel free to edit this if you want to. So there wasn't such a big pause, but, um, these are my social handles. If you want me to read them off again. Um, yeah. So it's Instagram, um, at good underscore culture. Um, and then Facebook is just facebook.com, you know, good culture food. Um, Pinterest is at good culture. Twitter is at good culture food and TikTok is at good underscore culture. Amazing. Jesse, thank you so much. Thanks, Jesse. You guys for having us. I appreciate it or for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks everyone for listening to today's episode. Feel free to rate, review, and share the podcast. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to Wellness. If you'd like to sponsor us, please see the supporter link in our podcast bio. We hope everyone has a great rest of week filled with wellness and we'll see you next time.